This is Hypercritical. It's a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that my co-host, John Syracusa, cannot find something wrong with it. There's nothing that he can't complain about. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. I'm Dan Benjamin, and uh, we'd like to say thanks to Rackspace.com and Shopify.com for making the show possible. We'll tell you more about them as the program continues, but, uh, you know, it's becoming... It's becoming a little bit of a of a a shtick of yours almost that uh, the follow up is most of the show now that the other the other hosts of the other shows are now they have something that they will refer to as uh, John Syracuse mode anytime they do follow up if I can make them feel that it's their responsibility to address the issues raised by listeners about their previous show I feel I will have succeeded I found out today you're six foot two that's right. Well, I was in my youth. Now I'm a hunched old man. With or without the hair? That's without. Okay. Do you wet it down when you take the measurements to keep it flat or what? It squishes down, you know. How tall are you? Do you, you, you have some sort of Napoleon complex? No, I don't think so. I'm, I, I'm you know, I'm average height in Korea. 5'7"? <laughs> 5'7". You know, 5'8 with a nice pair of shoes on. Five five ten at a podium. I'll file that away. Mm-hmm. Lock lock it up. All right. So we ready for some fu? <laughs> fu. Yeah. <laughs> what is the fu? It's the follow up. Follow up. Yeah. I don't. Want, I don't think I want to stick with that, but it, it is a convenient uh, abbreviation. <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah. Let's do the fu. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, Last week, we talked about uh, Apple's uh, UI consistency over the years. And that, that topic had been on our list for a long time, and we finally got to it because we were running out of stuff. Uh, but I know you wanted it for a long time, so we I finally did. got to it. Yeah. And then after we finished recording the show, uh, I was catching up on the Twitters, and I saw a tweet from uh, Mr. Merlin Mann. Uh, it was actually a reply to me, which is strange because he normally doesn't uh, communicate with me on Twitter. But this time he did reply and he said, hey, I, I listened to your UI consistency thing and I think you would like this talk by this other guy. So I followed it and there was a link to John Gruber's uh, Webstock mm-hmm. talk from this year. And I was like, wow, I, I thought that one wasn't recorded because I remember hearing him complaining that they didn't record his session and he was angry about it. And it turns out that was South by Southwest that he was uh. angry about them not recording. And in fact, it turns out they actually did record South by Southwest. Unbeknownst to him, they only did audio, audio recording. Right. Uh, but anyway, so I'm like, great, I'm going to take a look at this, uh, this talk now. So uh, later that day, I started watching the talk. And he begins, and I'm like, yeah, he's kind of starting the same place that I did. He's talking about, like, uh, the Mac is the first GUI and what it meant to be a GUI and, you know, the, the days before the GUI existed. And then he starts... Uh, talking about uh, some examples of the early GUI, and he brings up that original Mac control panel. So I'm watching this thing with like a growing sense of horror that every single thing he's saying in this talk is something that I just recorded in a podcast. Of course, the problem is that that WebStock talk was like months ago. Was that like last month or something? I so now I'm thinking, it, yeah, I think it was a, Now I'm thinking, oh my God, ago. everybody who listens to that episode is going to assume that I either went to WebStock or watched the WebStock talk and then just rehashed it from my no, podcast. No, I don't think so at all. But I but I so. swear to you, I had not seen that talk until after I recorded the episode, almost immediately after, which is, it was just a horrible, horrible experience. No, I, I, for, well, let me, let me chime in here for a second. I don't think you need to worry about this at all because I, I think, first of all, I didn't watch it either. I, I, the, my only, I only 
if I'm if John Gruber's not talking to me on the talk show, I don't I don't want to hear his voice. So I read his stuff, but I if I hear him, I've, I want to talk back, so I can't listen to him talking in somewhere else. It's too difficult. So I hadn't seen it either. Otherwise, I would have stopped you. I wouldn't have let you go. I wouldn't have let you. You know, I would have said, "Oh, didn't you see John Gruber's thing on that?" I didn't even know what he was talking about. And every time I ask him, "What? It, how was your talk?" He's like, "Ah, it was all right." So what'd you talk about? And he kind of, you know, changes the subject. Yeah. So I mean, th- this is not an uncommon thing amongst uh, the two of us, where we will end up having the same take on a particular topic. Uh, to the point where some people would think that we collaborated beforehand on on various things or that we're the same person or anything like that. that that's not the case. It just so happens that we end up having the same opinions. In this case, it was particularly spooky because we picked like the same examples and stuff. But it's it's really strange to me, especially since you know, you know, Gruber's history with the Mac started pretty late. Like I think in the past episode with you, he talked about his first Mac being an LC. Right. Or maybe that was in the talk. But yeah, but that's, that's a latecomer, right? And I was there since 1984. But we still end up with the same... Uh, take on things. But uh, the reason I bring this up now is because if you watch the whole talk, even though there we start off the same way and we choose a lot of the same examples, there is a divergence there. And I think the point that I was making with some of those same examples was different than the points that he was making. Uh, so my main point on uh, on the topics that we overlapped on was that Apple has always sort of worked beyond the bounds of its own UI guidelines. Uh, but Gruber's point in the talk was that the change in the look of the GUI was a lot slower in the beginning. And it took Apple a while to feel confident that they could start changing the look in ways uh, that wouldn't confuse people. Sort of the, uh, my example that I was using was that from that talk book of multiplex meanings where you have the, you know, 20 different versions of a house icon or the, the, the classic Mac OS extension puzzle pieces that face in all different directions. As long as people can tell what it is, it's okay. Um, so we were using the, we both picked that control panel example, but he was using it as an example of like, look at this UI that doesn't use labels. Look at how different it, it is than what's come before it. And I was using it as an example of how Apple wasn't beholden to its own guidelines from day one. And they made this window completely filled with non-standard controls. And the only standard control in the entire thing was the title bar. So, so even though we use the same example, I think we made very different points. Now, in the end, you say, uh, is uh, last episode and his talk, are they contradictory? Uh, are, are, are they you know, completely at odds? I, I don't th- think they're completely at odds. They do make a lot of the same points, especially about how you can change the look of something. And, uh, and as long as people can still tell what it is, it's fine. And, and the, the, the role of fashion in design and, mm. and how changing the look actually has, has a purpose. It's not just arbitrary. Uh, the place where I think we would diverge is that uh, Gruber seems to contend that Apple followed the Hig to the letter in the old days. Like he's he's positing a time when Apple conformed more strictly to to human interface guidelines. Um, and I think his example, his since he used that control panel example, example from earlier in his talk contradicts that. That uh, you know maybe the look of the entire OS didn't change as, as quickly, but certainly Apple was never uh, a slave to the Hig, and there, I don't think there was ever a time that Apple was like that. Where I think we would agree is that when he goes into this the middle time of the Mac where there was sort of an, an exuberance of, uh, of variation where we had Kaleidoscope and he talks about B-View, the thing that made your windows look like BOS. Uh, he trots out the high-tech and the gizmo and drawing board themes from Apple. There was that period where there were really like, there were no rules and there was lots of experimentation where we finally were, were being removed from the bounds of everything looking exactly the same. Uh, so I think we would agree on that point. But uh, where we differ is that I, I think it wasn't Apple that 
followed the Higgs to the letter in the old days. It was the developers did. And that's what I tried to get into in a talk of saying how like Apple put out these guidelines and the people who are enthusiastic for the platform felt compelled to treat the guidelines as Bible as a way of advancing the platform. And it wasn't so much Apple. It was the very enthusiastic uh, supporters and advocates of, of the platform that were, you know, signed up to the HIG as the Bible, uh, not Apple itself. Um, they made some good points later about uh, consistency, consistency and uniformity. Uh, my favorite one was where he, he mentioned that Jobs had uh, gotten rid of the idea of everything looking exactly the same. He, he wanted things to be consistent, but they didn't have to look exactly the same. But then he pulls up a slide that, that he said, I think it's funny that the guy who came up with this is known for having a uniform. And it shows 20 different pictures of Jobs. And he's always wearing, of course, the same outfit, mm -hmm. the black mock turtleneck and the jeans. Uh, if people haven't seen this talk, it's in the show notes. And actually now, thanks to your website change, you can see the show notes during the show if you go to the, uh, what is it? 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash next. Nah, slash next. I'll, every time I'll take you to whatever the, the next show is for you. And if, if there is no next show yet, it means we haven't started collecting links. But at any point you can go there. As soon as we start uh, getting ready for you, you can add comments and, and all that stuff there. Yeah, so I suggest uh, even, even if you have listened to the last episode, uh, I would suggest watching his talk anyway. Uh, even though some of the same points are made, there are enough new points in there that you should definitely take a look at it. Uh, there's some good uh, good slides in there. All right. Uh, and on, so on the same topic, last on last week's show sort of snuck into the follow-up was a topic that was not actually a follow-up. Well, it was kind of a follow-up. We talked about uh, Facebook's uh, open source data center initiative. I think that was kind of a follow-up to the right. uh, yeah, kind of. online stuff. Uh, in this case, I knew that uh, John Stokes at Ars Technica had written an article about it, uh, I think either earlier that day or the previous day, and I intentionally didn't read it so I wouldn't be spoiled. So, But, but what it turns out is uh, my take on that situation was the same as his. I don't think that's a big surprise just because it's kind of obvious what Facebook is doing. I don't, I don't think there was any particular insight that either one of us had there, but he did a good write-up on that, and I put that link in the show notes. Uh, so, you know, that's another example of if, if something happens and seven people have the same opinion on it. it doesn't mean they collaborated it just means that there are some obvious conclusions that can be drawn from the the same facts that everyone has available to them all right so now for some actual follow-up uh a little bit of feedback on the the funny looking iCal and lion uh, i got some opinions in, in different directions here but someone brought up a, a good point about how making making windows look just completely different from all other windows regardless of whether it's ugly or not, uh, there has a, a benefit of making it easy to find on the screen. So if iCal is this big, ugly, you know, brown-looking giant toolbar thing, it's really easy to pick that out on the screen uh, and, as opposed to just a giant gray toolbar, which blends in with all your other right. things with giant gray toolbars. Now, there's a limit to that. You know, one app gets to be like that fine, but if every app is a different color, then you now lose the ability to pick stuff out because it's just like looking at a big screen full of plaid, you know? Uh, but I, I think that was a good point where that's kind of the advantage that Apple has. If Apple decides to make some super important app look weird, uh, like the, say for the Finder, for instance, they decide to make the Finder windows green with grass on them, and nobody else could have that look because you know you can't theme the OS and you don't want to put custom windows on all of your things. So you'd see the Finder windows stand up as they look green. Well, Apple can do that with the app that it knows everybody has to run because it launches when you log in, and it can kind of be the only one to do it. But if it becomes a trend, then it just, it, it, you know, it stops being an advantage. So I would not hold that up as a reason to justify iCal looking funny in Lion. But 
it may be a practical result of iCal looking funny is that it'll be a lot easier to find that iCal window, assuming every other Apple app doesn't also have some crazy new look. Um, I think, I, but I think that's what we're we got to anticipate is that every app is going to have a weird new look. Uh, they can't do it with everyone. I mean, they just Why don't not? have time, and they don't care enough. Like, what, are they going to make terminal look different? No, it's going to be gray mm-hmm. windows everywhere. Uh, yeah. I, I don't expect. Uh, there, there were some pictures of address book looking different too, but those are kind of of a piece. You know, it's like if there, if there's an if there's an iPad equivalent of the app, maybe they'll try to sync up the look among them, and the iCal versions all have some sort of strange look on them. Uh, so we'll see. But I really don't expect like Safari to get all weird. The Finder, Terminal, Activity Viewer. I mean, uh, there's a limit. You know. Uh, so uh, related to this is uh, someone brought up the uh, the reverse of this, where Apple takes a, a UI element that previously had a distinct look and makes it all the same. Uh, and they're doing that a lot with toolbar buttons, making them look sort of like they do in the iPad apps, where it's just kind of like a gray silhouette, like it's stamped into the toolbar. Right. And they're all monochrome. Right. And that makes them much less distinct than when they were colorful, photographic-looking yeah. icons. And so now when you look at the, t- the, the title bar, or the, the, the toolbar of an app, and you want to find the button for, like, you know, reply to email or, or, you know, forward or whatever, now you're just looking based on shape instead of color. You know, you still got position, but... It seems, it seems though, like for a long time, one of the... I don't know if, if I would call it a feature, but, I mean, even the term aqua, I mean, everything about Mac OS X was colorful and popping and shiny and and they just have gone continuously more and more and more toward a monochrome kind of a look yeah they have been leaching the color out a lot i mean you saw them do it with itunes most recently right. uh, and, and the, I, the ios apps tend to have a lot of color leached out of them too but they go off another direction like i mean you would definitely not say that the new the lion iCal has the color leached out of it it's the exact opposite so right. they they pick their battles but it, it seems like this is this is a look they're cultivating for like the serious kind of application is more monochrome. Like look, like look at Final Cut Pro 10, which was uh, revealed this week. That interface looks like looks like the high tech theme practically from uh, from <laughs> yeah, very Copeland. Much does. You know, it's all jet black with like light gray stuff on it, and maybe some like blinky fake looking LED things. So. I don't know. I, I think they're just cultivating many different looks and deciding where each one is appropriate. I think they're back into experimentation. I think there was the quiet period was uh, leopard and snow leopard where everything went gray and they finally got rid of brush mail and everything else and they just had like a reset time and now I think they're experimenting again. All right, one more, one more follow-up item I think we can fit in here. Okay. Uh, so there was a, a link that went around that's in the show notes about uh, how TiVo was sending out surveys to its customers and it was like... Uh, you you had a hundred points to to spread uh, on the survey among a big list of features, and you were supposed to distribute your points according to how much you wanted the particular feature. So uh, Engadget posted this, and they posted the entire list of features that you were allowed to spread them among, and it's a big list, like thirty features right. or something like that. Right. So I read through the whole thing. I don't, I don't know why I even bothered. Like even before I read it, I knew the types of features that they would be asking about would not make me happy. Uh, so they asked about features like uh, multi-room viewing, which a lot of the DVRs that you get from your cable company can do where you just have, you pay for one DVR and then in the second room you have another little smaller cheaper box that lets you see stuff on the other DVR so you don't have these islands of content in your house and you can just have one DVR that records a bunch of stuff and you can watch it anywhere uh, and they're talking about a four tuner model and a whole bunch of 
a whole bunch of obvious software features that they should have had years ago that I don't even know why they're asking about. Would you like it if you have HD version of the channel that we, we give you the ability to hide the SD version? Yes, of course. Why would mm-hmm. I ever watch the SD version ever? I don't even want to see it. But now they have to survey about this. It just drives me nuts. So reading this is making me angry, especially since the, the features that I think are most important are not listed. For the same reason, they're usually not listed. And it's like a sickness that companies have where they, they start seeing things in terms of feature bullet points and they can't. They can't understand what's actually wrong with their product. What's actually wrong with TiVo is the freaking box is slow. Slow and ugly and just, you know, things should not take that long and they get slower with time. And this is nowhere on the list. They're not going to say, would you like it if the menus came out faster? Because people are going to be like, meh, maybe, maybe not. People will not ask for this, but you have to give it to them. They don't, this, you know, they don't understand. They can say, well, we want to spend X millions of dollars to make our user interface faster. It's faster. What do you mean? People don't complain about it being slow. It's fine. They don't understand that, you, you know, people are not going to ask for it. If, if iOS never existed... And it was just Android tablets and stuff like that. People would be like, look at this Zoom tablet. It's amazing. And I can zoom. And look at these Android things. They're awesome. If you've never seen iOS and how it sticks to your fingers when you move and stuff, you don't know you're missing it. Users will not ask you for a more responsive interface. But when you give them a more responsive interface, they will prefer that over the less responsive one, even if they don't know why it is that they prefer it. I think you know the experience of iOS has borne that out. And the fact that TiVo is getting slower with time, and instead of even just staying the same, let alone getting faster as it should with the huge advances in technology we've had since like 2000, ugh, just frustrating. So um, I did not like that feature list. If I, had, if I had gotten that survey, I would have written in a new option, put all 100 points on it, and said, make your user interface faster. <sighs> all right. I love when you go off on a rant like that. I can't. I can't take it. I feel like I could do six more shows just about TiVo. Like, <laughs> we should just have you know guests on the show and say, "Do you own a TiVo? Name the seven thing, obvious things that TiVo could do to be better that have driven you crazy for the past decade that they have refused to do." <laughs> have like a little round table. Everybody takes a turn. Yeah, it's just you know, I feel like if you took ten people off the street who have used TiVo, they would get you a list of features to implement. You don't need to survey people and have them distribute 100 points among these ridiculous esoteric features. Uh, yeah. People should follow the link and read the features. Like they're they're picking at the these little, you know, fringes around the edges when the entire carpet is on fire. I don't know, bad analogy. I can't think of a good one. You're too upset. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I well, think before, we're done with follow up. So do we have a topic for today's show? We do. You, you didn't even, you're not even looking at the. the I don't look anymore. I just want. I just. I'm on autopilot. I'm doing it myself. And, I like uh, it. You're, you're surprised when you come to the show. You want to like guess it. what the topic is? You didn't look at all. Well, let me look at the look at these notes here. No, I, I put it on the the. Uh, Did you? You put it in. Page. Oh, in the top. No, I haven't gone to the topics page. But I can yeah. look at these links. Yeah, and you can guess. I see the word Copeland about five or six times. Yeah, and speaking of words that like you know you pronounce in your head for a long time before you have to say them out loud. So I read about this operating system for years and years in my in my youth, and I always pronounced it in my head Copland, Copland. which is not how you pronounce it because it's named after the composer. Uh, was it Aaron Aaron Copland? So I'm working really hard in the past decade or so to say Copland <laughs> Copland. It's just so a very it's just a straightforward up. variable substitution. You just need to run. Yeah, it's working pretty well so far. We'll see if I can get through this without slipping up. So this is this is a great topic. This is an awesome topic. And let, actually, before we dive in, because I have a feeling that you're gonna, you've got a lot to say about this one. So before we start it, let let's do the first sponsor. Is Go that okay? It. Yep. All right. So we want to thank Rackspace. Do you remember John back in February? Rackspace asked if uh, if if listeners of this show and other shows 
uh, had what it takes to be king of the apps. Do you remember that contest, king of the apps? Vaguely. Okay, so a whole bunch of people took up the the challenge, and it basically was to create an application on top of Rackspace Cloud Files. Didn't matter what your application was, and they're going to give you ten thousand dollars. Oh yeah, now I remember it. Okay, did you apply? Did you do this? I did not. That would be conflict of interest, wouldn't it? I, I'd say go for it this time because this is round two. Anyway, they announced at Snap Appointments they were crowned king of the apps in uh, at South by Southwest. Now round two, you have to submit your app by May second. All you need to do is is build an app that works on cloud files, Rackspace cloud files. Anything you can imagine, as long as it uses that, you could win 10000 bucks, and the uh, the winner will be announced at Interop Las Vegas. Are you going to be there? Not me. No, you're not going to that as a representative? No. Okay. That's your choice. So anyway, you can find out all the details and, and find out how you could win $10,000 at Rackspace.com slash king of the apps. And their slogan for this is Showcase, Triumph, Defend. I like that. 10000 but what would you do with 10000 bucks if you just built, you wrote a little app and got ten grand? <laughs> you know what I would do with it. It's buy, the most boring answer ever, but it's true. Buy more TiVos. No, it goes right into the kids' college funds. <laughs> well, that's a good thing to do with it. Better than TiVo. Yeah, boring though. So Copeland was, I'll quote the Wikipedia page, Copeland was a project at Apple Computer to create an updated version of the Macintosh operating system. It was to have introduced protected memory, preemptive multitasking, and a number of new underlying operating system features, yet still be compatible with existing Mac software. You know this is not where I, this is not how I start things though. I know. I always have to go back. Right, go so let's go back, back further. But there's people who are going to say, Copeland, what do I care about Copeland for? Now at least they know what you're talking about. There's a lot of people that they, they, yeah, their, yeah. their introduction don't even know what Copeland to is. Mac OS X about? is 10.2. A lot of people just got their first MacBook, you know? I know. Well, so, I mean, it's, it's only So you don't want to take them back to you know, 1969 at Woodstock when, you know, Waz was... <laughs> you know, tripping out and had an idea for something, you know, let, let, let give him a framework. Well, I mean, so, all right, so we'll come back to Copeland, but we'll, I'll start from, uh, uh, th- this is a talk that's about a series of articles I wrote many years ago in 2005. Uh, and the title of the article series was avoiding Copeland 2010. Uh, and it was written in 2005. So the premise underlying this entire series of articles, this article, this article was like, uh, it had a point and it was trying to say, uh, you know, to predict the future and warn about something that could happen, right? Um, so the premise, which I'm going to lay out now, most people, if you just give them the premise in isolation, agree with and, and you know, without even thinking about it, like, yeah, that's obviously everybody knows that it's, you know, it's not worth even discussing. Oh, we don't even have to be explicit about this premise. We all agree. But when I'm done and I start trying to use that premise to extrapolate and draw conclusions, then people will come back and challenge the premise. So we'll see if that happens uh, with you here or, or any of the listeners. So the premise is that abstraction increases over time uh, in the computer industry. Uh, you could take off the computer industry qualifier and just say abstraction increases over time, period, because it's sort of the, the basis of all human progress where it's systems built upon systems, where someone figures out how to do some small thing and then the next generation comes along and they figure out how to do something built on the previous system because they don't have to worry about that one. It's been figured out so they could build something more complicated on top of it. Well, uh, in computers, that has sort of played out very, very quickly, uh, much more quickly than in just like all of human history, uh, where mach- computers just came into existence, you know, within a human lifetime or two. 
and we've gone so far since then. So I'm going to speak specifically about programming computers. What do you have to do to tell a computer uh, what to do? Uh, and and this sort of briefly go through the progression that's made. So in the beginning, uh, ignoring the phase where you had just toggle switches and people were just you know flipping switches on and off to enter binary. In the beginning, when you had program- programmable computers, people were programming with machine code, which means you would enter basically just a series of ones and zeros that would the the, the computer would interpret as instructions. You know, this this particular uh, number means this instruction, and then the next number is an address, and the next number is a value, and so on and so forth. Is uh, that's how uh, what is it? Von Neumann machines? Am I pronouncing that correctly? I uh, think so. Or it's either von Neumann or Neumann. I don't know. I, yeah, I go with Neumann. Let's go with Neumann. But anyway, it's it's the idea of, a, of of you have a big set of memory that contains both your data and your instructions, and then you have a CPU that reads from the the program from memory uh, and executes these instructions. And back in the day, when people made the first computers, that's how you would program it. You'd have to put in the numbers that the CPU would eat and perform the actual task. Now, no one wants to just enter in long strings of binary or hexadecimal or anything numbers because it's ridiculous. So the, the next phase was assembly code, where they gave you symbolic representations of these numbers, where the instruction for you know uh, moving a value from one register to another, we're just going to call that MOV, and you don't have to remember the hexadecimal number for it. And then your addresses, you just you'd make up names for them, and then you'd refer to those names in the program, and then an assembler would come in later and take your text representation and say, okay, MOV, that's this instruction. And, you know, this symbolic name, you know, AX, okay, that's the register. Uh, this, this is the value for that register. And you made up this name for this in the memory address, so I'll substitute that memory address for the name. Um, that was called assembly code. Uh, and the assembler was a thing that turned it into a machine code, and then the CPU executed the machine code. So that's the first layer of abstraction, where you didn't have to write in the machine code. You wrote in this thing that was a little bit nicer for humans, and then another program that someone wrote before you would come and turn it into machine code. Um, but th- that was still stuck on, on a single CPU, because uh, a machine code only works on one particular CPU, and assembly code turns into machine code, and that only works on one CPU. So the next layer, layer of abstraction was portable languages, where you could write a program and have it execute on different CPUs because your compiler would compile it for them. And the, the most popular one of those is C, where you would write in a language C was called portable assembler is kind of a, a uh, derogatory term, but basically you, you write it, you write it in a more abstract form that the compiler compiles into uh, basically machine code, sometimes passing through assembly uh, on its way down for a particular CPU. So the same C program you could compile for two different CPUs and execute it on two different CPUs and it, and it would run. But in the end it was like, uh, higher level concepts for stuff that uh, that the the machine would understand. So it had this concept of types where, you know, you'd have integer types and and character types and stuff like that. They were all end up being numbers behind the scenes, but these types would would add constraints to your program to make make sure you were doing what you thought you were doing. And then you had much more complicated statements where you'd have a single line of code that would result in many, many, many lines of assembly, many, many, many lines of machine code in the end, but you didn't have to write all those lines. It would figure it out for you. Um, and that, that phase lasted a long time where you're writing in C, Pascal, those type of compiled languages that were various forms of, you know, portable assembly language where you'd write something that can run in many different architectures. Uh, maybe that lasted until the nineties or so. That's, that's a pretty long time. We've gone from the first computer in the sixties all the way up to the nineties and we haven't gotten that much farther along in abstraction. But then around the, the late eighties, early nineties, uh, a lot of the research projects had done this before, but this was the first time that popular languages started uh, being memory managed, where they would move even farther away from assembly, where they would basically write a, uh, a little program called a virtual machine that would represent a computer that didn't actually exist, but that was much nicer to deal with than a CPU. 
and then you would write programs to that virtual machine, and that virtual machine would compile those programs down to machine code, and the machine code would execute on the actual CPU. Uh, so there's one more layer up there. The big, the big difference in this is there was no more a need for uh, the programmer to manage memory manually. Uh, sometimes they didn't have to deal with it at all. They would just make variables, and they would pop into existence and disappear when they went out of scope, and you didn't have to worry about where the memory came from or where it was going or who still had references to it. The virtual machine would take care of that for you. Um, and with that came the, the, the ability for you to not worry about accidentally writing over arbitrary memory. So with all the old models, since all this got turned into it eventually a memory address or whatever, if you, if you ended up with a bad value and you dereferenced that as an address, then you could just start scribbling wherever the heck you wanted in, in memory, uh, within your memory image anyway. And that would cause your program to crash. Well, with the virtual machine ones, it said, no, we're not going to give you any any facility in the programming language to grab an address to memory based on some number and just start writing over it. It's just, you're not able to do that, period. Of course, the virtual machine itself was usually written in a language like C and eventually would take your program and convert it into machine code for the particular, particular CPU that it's running on. Sometimes it would do that at runtime, in fact, and then it would execute. So now we're like three layers up from, maybe three or four layers up from the actual CPU. And then uh, around that same time, maybe a little bit later, dynamic language started to become popular. That, that word really means nothing, but what it, what it really means <laughs> is languages that are memory managed, but uh, have even fewer constraints uh, than the memory managed languages like Java or C Sharp or anything like that. Uh, one of the things they threw away was that, that having to deal with types. They said, well, it, we'll just figure that out for you. So there's no like integer types or, you know, uh, string types or anything like that. You just have variables and we'll figure out what the type is for you. We'll also figure out all the memory for you. We'll, we'll build in some more nice stuff for you that everybody wants to do anyway, like regular expressions and stuff like that. Um, and we'll make it so that a lot of these things uh, compiled when you ran them. So you didn't have to compile to an executable and run the executable. When you ran the thing, it would compile it at that point and then execute it immediately. Uh, and JavaScript is a, another example of this. Um, and so this has been a long, long road from, like, for, for example, from JavaScript to, to machine code. Because now, it, it, think about a modern uh, JavaScript engine in, in a web browser, right? So you've got this language that doesn't have anything to do with memory or pointers or anything like that. And that gets compiled onto usually some sort of virtual machine in your browser, which is itself written in a language like C or C++, which ends up being compiled and executing in machine code and sometimes even assembly on, you know, for the tight loops inside the, the JavaScript engines on your CPU. So that's the big trail through what has happened to, to programming languages uh, over the years and how abstraction has increased over time. And I don't think people would disagree with that. You say, do people write an assembly today? Yeah, some people still write an assembly. Sometimes, like the guy who's writing the JavaScript uh, engine for your browser, sometimes if there's some particular tight loop inside the, the, the virtual machine that runs JavaScript and you want it to be super fast, maybe you do it in assembly, you know? Uh, but the vast majority of people are not writing an assembly versus, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you, you know, you were writing an assembly. If you were writing, you know, like the, the original Mac operating system, for example, was mostly written in assembly. Hard to believe, but like the first GUI operating system, which we're thinking of as super modern and everything, was absolutely filled with assembly, especially for the important routines. Whereas nowadays, it's very, very small parts of the operating system are in assembly. Just a few keys, tiny parts, and most of it are written in a higher level language. Uh, and things like websites, no one's writing websites in assembly, you know, no one's writing websites in C++ unless they're crazy. I guess I think there's one or two people out there still doing that. But uh, but the trend line is clear. And what are they teaching think, in, in the universities these days? What's the, if if you decide I you want to be a computer science, jobs, right? I mean, it makes sense. When I was, when to date myself a lot here, when I was in college. It's Pascal. 
you know, they were switching from Modula to Pascal, and and like one of the teachers was only doing Pascal, and to to stay, I guess, to keep kosher with the rest of the staff, you could turn your assignments in in Modula, and he would allow that, but only for the rest of the semester. Well, computer, as, as the saying goes, computer science has about as much to do with computers as astronomy has to do with telescopes. Uh, so a lot of the things they're using using in teaching are to teach you concepts of computer science, which right. are more mathematical in nature. And the fact that they have to use an actual language to teach you this is almost like it's a kind of a shame because they would rather just, you know, talk about it conceptually. But you know, I guess you got to write some sort of code that I use. They're not teaching you to be a programmer as in as a trade. They're trying to teach you uh, concepts, the concepts of computer science. And the, and the particular language they use to do that is not important. But within the industry, the, the trend line has been clear. Most working programmers are not working in assembly. They're not working in machine code. They're not even working in C. Like these days, they're working in C Sharp. Java, you know, took over a, a lot of the, uh, the the bulk of the programming market when it came out. Uh, and then lots of people now are working in dynamic languages like Ruby, JavaScript, Python, stuff like that. What do you work in most days? Can you say that? Because I know you're I, sort I work of in Perl, which will flip people out. But believe it or not, people still do that. And uh, I'll talk, wow. talk more about that at the end if I have time. Wow. Right, so, no, we're going to make time for that. Yeah, we can do a whole episode on it. You know, I actually have probably have some good rants about that. Um, can you read your own Perl once you write it? Of course I can. Okay. Yes. Most, most people can't. It's not true. All right. So that, that is the premise. And you, you agree with it, right? That Absolutely. Perl language has gotten more abstract over Absolutely. time? Absolutely. And, and and do you it, think I, this is a trend that's going to reverse or I, level off or not continue? I would say it's either going to... Yeah, it's interesting because the choices you gave me are, is it going to uh, to level off, reverse, or not continue? I, I I think it's going to continue. I think it's going to maybe level off or continue, keep continuing. All right. So finally, getting back to this avoiding Copeland 2010 thing, I have to do one more <laughs> quick history here. Oh, All my right, God. So, so, yeah, I know it's tough. So back in the 90s, uh, Apple found itself kind of behind technically. Uh, Steve Jobs wasn't there at this point. He'd been kicked out in 85, 86. Uh, the company made a lot of money uh, in, in the, the late 80s, early 90s by charging a lot for its hardware. But as the 90s started and Windows 95 was looming and stuff, their operating system was behind. Uh, and it was behind technically. And the two big things that it missed, if you were a nerd in this period of time, you knew what Mac, the classic Mac OS was missing. But the two big things that it that didn't have were memory protection and preemptive multitasking. And those were super, super important because people were tired of their Macs crashing. Memory protection is the thing that prevented one program from scribbling over the memory of another program or over the memory of the operating system. And that was important because if you got a badly behaved application, it would take out your whole Mac and you need to reboot. And this was an increasingly common situation, yeah. that was a which tough was fine. Time. It was fine when you had 128K because what the heck can you do? You got 128K. It's a miracle you can even get a GUI on the screen with 128 kilobytes of RAM <laughs> in the entire machine, right? <laughs> but as the machines got bigger and faster... Uh, it became unacceptable to have this limitation. And the second one was preemptive multitasking. Preemptive multitasking allows the operating system to say, all right, program B, you're done. I'm going to let program A run for a little while now. Okay, now now you can run again, program B, and you know, back and forth. The operating system could preempt you, could say, you know, get off the CPU, it's, time, it's someone else's turn. Uh, Mac OS, again, uh, when you had 128 kilobytes of RAM, you didn't expect preemptive multitasking. Uh, they just had, it's amazing they could get it to run at all. But, they have what we call cooperative multitasking, which is kind of like the Patriot Act, one of those nice names. Who doesn't like to cooperate? Cooperative multitasking. <laughs> isn't, isn't that the kinder and gentler kind of? No, it's not good. Because what it means is that if a process gets the CPU, it, can, it only voluntarily gives the CPU up to another process, which meant 
that any process could hog the entire CPU and no one else could get any time. Uh, and programs are notoriously bad about deciding that they don't need the CPU anymore because you're, you're relying on them to share to say, oh, you know, everyone should behave. When you don't need the CPU, give it up. And like, do I need the CPU? Well, I don't know. I might need it. I, I really don't want to give it up right now. <laughs> Let me just try one more loop and check for events. Okay, no, I'll give it up in a second. You know, it was a bad situation that wasted the resources that you had there. So programs would hog the CPU just in case they needed it or be in some sort of busy loop burning through CPU cycles because they thought they were the only one running and then other programs were out there starving because they're not being uh, given cycles anymore. All right, so by the 90s, it was clear that you needed this stuff. You didn't have this stuff. You started to look like creaky, old, crappy technology. And for reference, for people who don't know, every single modern operating system anywhere, probably on wristwatches today, has both of these features. <laughs> They're super important. But back then, the Mac didn't have them. And, and so Apple's trying to figure out, how do we get these? We, we know we need to have these. And like every year that passes, it's getting more and more embarrassing that we don't have them. Every time someone has to reboot their Mac and we hear those little chimes going off during, in the office and people are complaining because things are freezing, you know, we got to do this. So they tried like seven different plans about how we're going to get these things to our operating system. So the problem is to add them, you didn't want to like make it so none of your existing apps worked anymore. You can't like, oh, here's a brand new operating system and none of your old apps work, but hey guys, you'll, you'll come on board, right? We, we won't lose any customers because of this. You know, that, that was a bad scene. Uh, they needed to bring existing customers along and make sure their apps still ran. Otherwise, it's like you're starting a whole new company from scratch and you're just leaving your old customers behind. That, that was not going to fly. But retrofitting, can we take existing Mac operating system and add these features? Well, the problem was that every single existing Mac application, including the operating system itself, expected to be able to read any memory it wanted, and they were all, you know, in one big giant soup together. They expected to be able to hog the CPU. They just, you know, they, they ran in this type of environment, and if you change the environment on them, every single app would break. So how do we let these guys think that they can actually scribble all over memory and read memory from other applications? Uh, one of my favorite uh, classic Mac applications was... Uh, so if I, if I had a document or something that I was editing and accidentally closed the window without saving, there was an application that would search through all memory in the entire machine for uh, you know, a string or something. And so if I accidentally closed a program or something and, and I wanted text back that was in that, I could use this thing to sort of scrounge really? through all, all of memory in the entire machine and find the document <laughs> that was previously in memory because those pages still hadn't been overwritten. Wow. And this was not a special privilege program. This is a program that any person can run. So really, memory was just an open green field that any, any person, any program, any anything could just go rummaging through. Uh, and this is what applications expected, and some of them actually took advantage of it. So you couldn't just apply these strictures because literally every single program would break. Um, and so they had many failed efforts to try to do this. They had this talogen effort with IBM, like, let's make a brand new operating system, and we'll partner with IBM, and it'll be so awesome, people won't care, they'll jump ship from the Mac and leave all their old apps behind and come with us. Uh, they have the, the Copeland project that we just talked about, which is like, well, we'll make a new operating system that, that kind of like the old one. We'll try to get most of the benefits of memory protection and preemptive multitasking, but we'll have this other mode where the old apps can run. And the old apps will still be able to crash the whole operating system because they have to be able to because they need to see all of memory. But we, the new apps wouldn't, and we'd try to gradually bring people over to the new apps. They never shipped that. It didn't work out. It was a big mess. Uh, and, and at the point where they were killing that project, where it's like, look, we spent all these years on this thing, and it's still not panning out. They're like, fine, we just have to buy something. We gotta like, we gotta find something out there and, and buy it. So they they were gonna buy a, a, a company B Incorporated, which was started by an ex Apple guy, because they had this, this great new operating system that was, if you ran BOS on on the existing Apple hardware of the day, it would make the Apple hardware look amazingly fast. And they're like, yeah, that's like their operating system already runs on our hardware, and it's way faster than ours, and it's way cooler, and it's got a lot of buzz. Let's buy them. 
but they wanted like $600 million and Apple mm. didn't want to pay it. Uh, they, they looked everywhere. They considered licensing the Windows NT kernel. I think one of, these, one of the history books that I read on this was talking about talking to the executives uh, who were at Apple at the time. Can, can you imagine that that was, that was one of Apple's plans? And it wasn't just like an outlier. That was like of the top three choices that was up there. Like, let's license the Windows NT kernel from, from Microsoft and use that as our next generation operating system. And who knows? Maybe we'll be able to run Windows apps too. That, that could be a benefit for our company, right? Uh, in the end, we know what they actually did. They ended up buying uh, uh, Next and Steve Jobs, and the rest is history. They got you know two great things there. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is I'm going to compare it to what Microsoft did. Uh, Microsoft had the same exact problem because they had a crappy operating system with you know they had even worse problems. They had segmented memory and all sorts of crazy uh, x86 Intel stuff to deal with, and their programs expected to be able to read it all over the place too. So, uh, but but what they did is they had a plan. There was a long, long multi-year plan, uh, and they executed on it uh, much better than Apple. They didn't go in 20 different directions. They went in one direction and did it slowly. So they introduced Windows NT in, like, 1993. And it wasn't a replacement for the existing Windows. It was this other thing. that was, like, it was a modern OS. It had those, all those modern features that you expected to have, and it had a backward compatibility layer. It actually had a layer where you can run POSIX programs, or, like, Unix programs. It had a layer where you can run OS2 programs, because I hear OS2 is the next big thing, and IBM is backing <laughs> it, and they're, they're a giant in the industry. Uh, and you could run Win32 and Win16 programs on it, too. And what was nice about this was that it they never gave you this promise that everything was going to work perfectly because it was a different operating system, and it was intended for a different audience. It was a whole different user base was going to be using NT. Yeah, so they weren't. Like, it wasn't like the consumer operating system release going from you know ninety five to ninety eight to ME or whatever. They they could do things. They could afford to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. So for example, the the hardware requirements of NT were way higher than the consumer OS, and and it was slower, and it would run most of your apps slower if you had legacy apps, and it was just this big, complicated, bloated, enterprisey thing that they were not selling to the average person. PCs were not shipping with Windows NT in them, but. It slowly started to filter its way into corporations for like servers and other serious hardware, right? But this was important because it gave uh, Microsoft's next generation operating system a place to grow up, a place to say, all right, this is going to be a little bit creaky and weird at first, and it might be buggy, and we can't quite figure it out, and then it's got these really high hardware requirements, and it's slow and everything, but... You know, enterprise developers, enterprise customers can deal with that. And if they have servers, they're going to spend the money on good hardware anyway. So, you know, they figured let's 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 go with this and let it sort of grow there. Uh, someone, someone in the chat room is bringing up the whole OS two thing with IBM and how Windows NT was a sort of betrayal of that plan. This I don't want to get too far into the history. There's a lot of intrigue involving this, but, but I'm going to say that we're just going to pick the the horses that we know eventually won. Um, so, what happened is that Windows NT gr- grew in that little protected environment of the enterprise through several versions. And eventually, when the time was right, Microsoft did the big switcheroo, and they said, okay, our next version of Windows, you know, the one that comes on your PC that you buy in the store, that kind of Windows, our next version of real Windows is going to have Windows NT at the core. And and Windows 2000 was the first one to do that. Uh, It was still kind of like a corporate-type operating system, but home users were running Windows 2000 uh, eventually where you'd buy a PC and it would say, hey, this comes with the great new Windows 2000. And by that point, they had wrung out most of the issues in terms of Win32 and Win16 compatibility and stuff like that. And most applications had been updated to be, you know, WinNT savvy or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so it was, it was time for the transition. And, and Windows XP was the, the big bang where, like, even if you hadn't upgraded Windows 2000, by the time XP came along, which was also based on the Windows NT core, everybody had Windows XP. In fact, it's probably still on your PC right now if you didn't upgrade to Windows 7 because nobody uses Vista. Uh, so that was their transition strategy. It was very different than Apple's. It was a really long-term plan where they had this thing on the back burner for a long time, but it took them that long to, to get you know, the issues sorted out. Now, 
I bring this up because this this struggle to modernize that Mac operating system almost killed Apple. It almost killed the entire company. There were many things that almost killed it, uh, you know, in terms of pricing and hardware and just bad uh, lack of leadership and, and too many products and stuff like that. But the technical issues, especially for a computer company, I would say are at least 50% of what almost killed Apple. They, they did not have a competitive product and they didn't know how to fix it. And the markets saw that and saw, that them, saw them drowning and waving their hands in the air and saying, we have a technical problem and we are not competent to fix it. And every year we announce a new plan and then we cancel the plan, then we try another plan, and then we cancel that one. And investors don't like that. And investors tank the, the stock. Everyone else said, oh, Apple, I think they're going under. I mean, even if you didn't know why, even if you didn't know anything about Apple doesn't have uh, memory protection and preemptive multitasking, you knew they were flailing. You knew they were trying to look for some next generation thing to do and they were not figuring it out. And, you know, they almost died. The only thing that saved them was getting that, that trio of things, a Jobs, Next, and Moore's Law, because they got the man, Jobs, who was going to be their leader for the future. They got the software, Unix, you know, the Next-based uh, operating system, which had Unix underneath that had all that modern stuff in it. And they got the hardware to run it all. Moore's Law eventually made Macs fast enough where they could take that Unix operating system and run it on their hardware with these you know, the blue blocks for right. backward compatibility with Mac applications, and you finally have enough RAM to do all that stuff. These are solutions that maybe weren't feasible in the early days, uh, but became feasible when the hardware caught up with it. And then in the end, you know, Mac OS 10, 10.0 was slow as molasses anyway and still was a tough sell. If it wasn't for Jobs, you know, pressing it and saying, well, you know, this Mac OS 10 thing is pretty crappy, but it looks shiny and Steve Jobs is pretty cool. You know, it took years to, to get that up to speed. But this crisis did almost kill the company. Now, the point of the Avoiding Copeland 2010 article was, is there another crisis like this this Copeland crisis? I call it the Copeland crisis because Copeland was the 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 you know the most well known project that was going to save Apple from its crappy operating system, and it's the one that cratered. Right. So, is there some sort of crisis like this looming in Apple's future now? The new Apple it's on its feet. It's got Mac OS X. Everything's settled. Doesn't have to worry about that preemptive multitasking, memory protection stuff anymore. It's it's got all these other you know great things going on. But is there another crisis like this? A technical crisis? in Apple's future that, uh, that they have to worry about. And my conclusion in the article was that, yes, there is a problem like that lurking out in Apple's future. And it's the type of problem where, just like the operating system problem, there doesn't seem to be a good solution for it. And the problem is that what, what Apple lacks now that they will eventually need is a memory-managed language and API for programming Mac applications. Because as we all know, Mac applications today are written Objective-C, which is a C-based language, which uses pointers and all that good stuff. Um, and the API is built for Objective-C, and it links to a lot of C libraries, and you're programming in C, basically. And the reason I think this is a problem is because, like we just went through, uh, the abstraction of programming languages increases over time. And I don't think that's going to stop. I don't think that's ever going to stop. And so you're in a situation where Apple is using a, a C-based language, but everybody else on the, on the desktop platforms is not. Everybody else... Took uh, some, you know, took a look at what they had and executed on a plan to change. So you had Java, which sort of came out of nowhere for set-top boxes and, and took over the entire enterprise software industry. That was, you know, hey, everybody, stop programming C++ with pointers. Start programming Java, no pointers, right? And that just swept through like crazy. Then you had Microsoft, which again, to to its credit, had a multi-year, really complicated plan. To, to get away from what they were programming, which was C and C++. They came up with this common language runtime, which was like a virtual machine that sort of learned from the mistakes of, of the Java virtual machine, or if you want to be less charitable, copied the Java virtual machine hmm. and made a few tweaks here and there and changed the letters. But either way, I think they learned from the mistakes of the JVM and did something better. Uh, then they did C Sharp, 
which again, if you want to be unkind, you say it's just a bad clone of Java, but they took what Java had done, learned from Java's mistakes, made a new language called C-sharp that looked a little bit more like C and, and had its own unique features, and then they revised it like crazy. They made C-sharp, they versioned the language, and it just kept coming out with new versions of C-sharp that were better and better and had more and more features to, to try to make them, you know, uh, more palatable to programmers. And C-sharp ran on the common language runtime. And then finally, they had the .NET APIs, which were a new set of APIs. Not the old Win32 APIs, but a brand new set of APIs tailored for a modern memory managed language to run on the common language runtime. And that was going to replace, you know, every part of their old thing. Their old C++ based Win32, Win16, MFC, all those things were going to be replaced by these .NET APIs. And this, this process has took and has taken many, many, many years and tons of R&D and lots of money and lots of really smart people because you can't just flip a switch and get this stuff. Like they, they invented a virtual machine, a language, and a new API for their platform, and they're still doing it. They're still in the process of trying to transition people away from Win32 and stuff like that. So it, you know, it's not like you can't just start this and then be done within a year. This, this initiative from Microsoft has taken, I don't know, five years, seven, ten? It's a long time at this point, and they're still not done with it. So... What I was looking for is, how is Apple going to match this? Because they're still back on a C-based language. And as far as I knew at the time, in 2005, they didn't have a plan to say, here's how we're going to move away from Objective-C. Uh, you know, here, here's our next language in runtime. So in, back in 2005, I considered the alternatives. I said, what, well, what, what are the possibilities? What can they do? One of the possibilities is, all right, so pick one of those other languages. Pick Java or C-sharp or some other. You know, there's plenty of languages out there that are memory-managed languages. Why don't you just use one of those? You don't need to invent your own language. Uh, even back then, it was kind of clear to me that Apple really was not into using some, depending on someone for something that important. This was even before, was this before Safari? I don't know, but it's before Apple had decided not to use GCC anymore and it wanted its own compiler, before Apple didn't want Flash on its platform, you know, before all of these things, it was already clear that Apple did not want to be dependent on someone else. So they wouldn't want to pick Java, for example, because now they're like you're beholden to Sun. And they sure as hell wouldn't want to pick C Sharp because now you're beholden to Microsoft right, who sort of owns right, that language. Right. You know, and maybe they could do an embrace and extend where they just take Java or C Sharp and extend it and give it a new name and just start developing it on their own. But Apple, the Apple of 2005 was not yet ready to do that type of thing, like where they just say, great, that's an open source thing or that's an open standard. We're just going to take that and, uh, you know, rename it, call it, you know, Apple something or other, and just go off in our own direction, and we will take full responsibility for development uh, of it. Uh, the other co uh, possibility I thought of was uh, Objective-C with garbage collection. At that point, garbage collection was clearly telegraphed as something Apple was looking into. Right, right. Uh, I kind of rejected that one as well, just because garbage collection means you don't have to deal with manual memory management, but it still means that when you're programming, you're like one bad pointer to your reference away from scribbling all over memory. Like, it doesn't change the nature of the language. It just makes it so you probably don't have to deal with the memory management yourself, but you're still, like, down there at the bare metal, and the, you're still writing in portable assembly. And you still have all those things that make CC, you know. You've got all that, the, the casting, and there's, you know, uh, the, their type system, and there's no native strings and no native collection classes. It's, it's portable assembly, and garbage collection doesn't change that about the language. Um, and the final thing was bridges. Uh, so you had things where you could take some other higher level language and bridge it to Objective-C. So there's Pi Objective-C, Ruby Cocoa. Uh, there J, was even, J Ruby. Uh, yeah, Camel Bones. No one knows what Camel Bones is, but that was a Perl bridge to, to Cocoa. I think still I mean, exists. They, but there's bridges all the time. Like I mentioned J Ruby. That's, that's one of the big ones now. And they're actually in some cases getting better performance out of the bridges than they are. But do you use bridges? Well, so here's what I say about bridges or what I said back then in my opinion really hasn't changed. Even if you're writing 
in a higher level language, the API that you're writing to is still built for a lower level language. So you spend a lot of time building up structures that make absolutely no sense in the higher level language just to appease the API that was written for the lower level language. Uh, and, and you're not using any of the unique features of the higher level language. You know what I mean? Where if your higher level language supports uh, you know, arbitrary collections of stuff because it's got a native array class or it's got you know, a native uh, associative array structure, you're still building NS dictionaries to pass down to some function or whatever, which is ridiculous because that's a, it's an entire other layer of abstraction that you don't need because like, look, I've already got, I've already got something that's like a dictionary. It's part of my language. Why are you making me build this object to pass? Oh, it's because your API is written for Objective C, not for my thing. Um, and the unique features of the language, like the, most of these high-level languages have support for closures, and especially in, in the time of pre, uh, before blocks or whatever, you can say, "Well, can I pass you a closure?" And you can, "Well, no, none of our APIs will ever expect expect to be passed a closure because we don't have closures because you're writing something that's written in Objective C, and I don't care if you have a closure in, in you know Ruby or Python or something like that. So we're not going to take your lambdas and do anything with them because we have no idea what they are. So even though you're using a higher-level language, you're not using a higher-level language. Uh, and the final thing is they're just not perceived as native. You know, writing programs in this." you're just not writing to the native API. So you'd always have these people like, oh, that's fine and good. You want to write your thing in PyObjective-C, but I'm writing in the native language of the, of the platform, and mine will always be better and faster. Uh, you know, even if you win some minor benchmarks, I'm writing real live native Cocoa applications, and you're using a bridge. So it's got that stigma attached to it. Copeland. Yes. So you want to do a sponsor before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, are you ready to get to the meat of this? Yes, finally. It's only been, you know, an hour. I'm trying to go as fast as I can. All right, man. all right. So we'd also like to thank Shopify.com. Now, we've sold uh, T-shirts for 5 by 5 but uh, there's a whole lot more that you can sell with Shopify. We barely scratch the surface of what it can do. It's, it's really the absolute best way to sell anything online. It's got a super clean design. It makes setting up the store incredibly easy. Every single store from, from square one, no matter what level, what plan you're on, they all come with beautiful themes to choose from, or you can design your own, 100% customizable. You want to use your own HTML and CSS and make it look exactly like the rest of your site, you can do that. Or you can pick one of their designs and spend zero time, and their designs are pretty awesome. There's a 30-day free trial, which is nice, but if you use the code 5 by 5 you'll get three months for free. That's pretty nice. So uh, anyway, th- these guys are the absolute best. And people say, oh, well, that's great if, if you want to sell T-shirts, you want to sell physical goods and things like that. But I, I just want to do electronic stuff. I want to sell licenses or I want to sell you know, something that's uh, purely digital. Well, they can do that. There, there are plugins, there are add-ons, there are features for this. And you can even write your own if, you're, uh, if you are a software developer. You can write your own add-ons and plugins and fully integrate it, customize it, uh, do whatever you want to do. It's really great stuff. So shop in minutes of business for life. Check them out. Shopify.com and use the code 5 by 5 three months for free. Check them out. Here's what I would do, John. I would say if you don't have something that you think of that you want to sell today, go sign up. And by the time you're through the sign up, you'll be building a store and you'll just figure it out. You'll figure out something to sell. Love these guys. There, did you unplug and replug? I did. Okay. I always do. It's my new system. So it seems like finally we can talk about the topic of the show now. Well, that was part of it. It was the, the warning that there was this, this, this Copeland-like crisis looming and that I didn't feel in 2005 that Apple had any answer to it. Like, what the heck were they going to do? Right. Um, 
So I had to, when I had to think of a title for that series, it was it was going to be avoiding Copeland, and then I was going to put in a year, which was going to say like avoiding a Copeland-like situation coming in the year X. Mm. And this was 2005 and 2010. It was a round number, you know, because of the Arthur C. Clarke angle and everything like that. In part two of the series, I actually said that I thought 2010 was a bit early, but I didn't want to use a date that was really far off in the future because people's brains just switch off when you, when you hear really distant dates. Like if I called it Avoiding Copeland 2010 or, or 2020 or something, they were like, 2020, that's so far away. Who cares about that? You know, I had to use a year that was close enough that people felt, people felt that it was a, a pressing issue. So I couldn't pick something really far away. All right. But so 2010 rolls around. Um, and I thought it was time for me to revisit the topic because I wrote this series of articles that was warning about something bad that was going to happen. It used 2010 in the title, uh, and here we are in 2010, so how did it turn out? It's time to right. like, hold myself accountable right. for these, you know, these dire predictions about horrible things. So, so what happened? Well, here, here's – I started out the What Happened article, which is in the show notes, uh, with re- recapping the assumptions from the original series. And the assumptions were there's just three of them. One, that fully automatic memory management will eventually be an expected feature of uh, desktop application development. That, like, this is something that everyone's just going to expect to have when they're writing desktop apps. Two is that the rest of the industry will have, will have this by, by 2010. Every, the rest of the industry will have memory-managed APIs and fully automatic memory management in their, in their development environment. And the third one was that existing technologies in 2005 and any sort of obvious evolutions of them didn't fit the bill for what Apple needed to fix their problem. So those are my three premises. Okay. So here's what happened. Um, first premise that, that everyone is going to have automatic memory management for their desktop uh, OS applications. I think that's pretty much panned out. Uh, there's not too many platforms. It's just Windows and, and Apple and a couple other esoteric things. But for the most part, yeah. If you ask Microsoft, I'm going to write a Windows application. What should I write with? They're going to say, use C Sharp, use .NET, use our new APIs, use our new memory managed language. That's how you write Windows applications. So that, that one panned out. Uh, uh, and you know, and I think it's in a kind of an expected feature. Like if you're writing an application, that's kind of what you expect. I think when when developers new to iOS come along and they realize it's in this funky language, like oh, Objective C, I'll try that out, and they realize that they got to uh, retain and release their own memory. A lot of them are like, huh, you know, I'm coming off years as a Java developer or whatever, and this is kind of like going backwards for me. But whatever, you know, I'll keep going. Uh, you know, develop for iOS because that's where the money is or whatever. But I think that expectation is in there for most developers who are, who who have who have lived elsewhere who have not been in the apple camp forever and just accepted it as the way it is is that if you're writing a gui application at this point in time people just don't expect to be having to deal with with uh, memory manually they just you know and again i think java is the big one that changed that because so many developers use java for so long um and it really just got everybody out of the c plus plus thing and then the only people using c were like device driver writers and stuff um and then the final thing was that there were no existing technologies that Apple could sort of latch onto to get them out of their rut. And I don't know if there were or not, but uh, the bottom line is that here we are in 2010, and when you want to write a, a Mac OS X application, Apple says use Objective-C. And Objective-C is still Objective-C, and they've enhanced it in many ways, but it's still a C-based language. It's still sort of the same as, as it ever was in terms of uh, uh, you know, memory safety and uh, the API that's, that's tailored to it. But the important thing that happened that was not accounted for in the 2005 series is a little thing called the iPhone and iOS. Mm. So 2005, maybe that was a glimmer in somebody's eye. And I remember, I remember uh, back at an old job, we used to have a whiteboard where we would predict 
what was going to be announced at WWDC or Macworld or whatever. <laughs> we'd, all, we'd all put our predictions, then we get points for you know who got what right. And I was writing iPhone on that board for years before you know years before Apple had had a phone or even talked about a phone or whatever. I just wrote the word iPhone on there, and every year I was disappointed. Every year it was like, nope, no iPhone this year. You know, then they came out with it, and they actually called it iPhone, which was something that nobody expected. iPhone was just a placeholder, but but back then, no one was thinking about that. So now, iOS came along and. Mobile development, developing for these little tiny dinky things has sort of pushed back the, the, the urgency of this problem because basically the hardware regressed. You know, we have these amazing Macs now that are just ridiculously fast and have huge amounts of memory, but people are writing applications for iOS devices which have a fraction of the memory and a tiny fraction of the CPU power, and, and they, don't, you know, they, they don't even want to use all the CPU power because it burns your battery too much. Uh, you know, so you can't... like. Flash, for example, if a flash ran fast enough on, on a desktop or on an iOS device, you'd be like, oh, fine, it runs fast enough. But if it burns your battery down, you're like, no, no, stop running. I don't care that you run fast enough. You, I don't want flash on this device because it burns my battery down. So there's all these new constraints that make it so that all the advantages of Objective-C, which people in the chat room, I'm sure, have been uh, talking about while we've been chatting here, all the advantages of Objective-C are suddenly given a new lease on life. Objective-C is faster than these virtual machine-based languages, closer to the metal, there's less overhead. There's no virtual machine running in the background. You can you can you know manage your memory manually down to the byte, so you you know you're using exactly what you want. And all of these advantages, which became much less important on on a Mac with four gigabytes of RAM and a three gigahertz eight core CPU, suddenly become really important on a tiny little iOS device with, in the beginning, what was it a, uh, 128 megabytes of RAM, 512 megabytes, some I ridiculous. Thought it was 512, though. but two. Was the original it? the original iPhone. I think the original iPhone was 128. 128. No kidding. Something like that. I don't know. Wikipedia would know. But uh, and then so the CPU is like less than a gigahertz, dinky little in-order cores that just you know have no CPU power compared to what was available on the desktop. And so that was like, hey, you know, we're using we're using Objective C, and guess what? It's awesome. That's why we're faster than everybody. That's why we're bettering. And if we had changed to a memory managed language, there's no way we'd be getting like C sharp or .NET on here. And even Android trying to bring Java onto it, they're like, well, we're going to have a native SDK too if you want to do games and stuff because we know those are too slow in Java. Right. So suddenly. This, this thing, it was a problem for Apple. It's got a new lease on life. Hey, you know, everyone's happy again. Don't worry about it, guys. You know, we, this Objective-C turned out to be a great move, didn't it? Well, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that was a strategy. I think they had no alternative. But, what, you know, what I'm going to say is like, that's, that's all well and good, but they're kind of back in the same situation they were. Maybe they reset the clock a little bit, but that trend line of more abstraction over time is not going away. Even though there's a little bump in the road here, that trend line keeps going. And at this point, they're kind of in the same situation on the mobile platform because... Don't all the other mobile platforms, such as they are, offer a managed memory managed language and API? Like if you write for Android, you write in their little, you know, Java Dalvik VM thing. They don't call it Java for licensing reasons, but you write your applications in Java. And, and Windows Phone, I think they want you to write in C Sharp, or maybe they let you write in Silverlight even or whatever. Then you have things like Palm with WebOS, where you're writing in like JavaScript and web technologies. All of those are memory managed language and API. So here's Apple without a memory managed language and API on the mobile platform. And right now, I think it's still an advantage for them because their devices are faster, better, have better battery life and everything like that. But everyone else has not chosen to go with that. Like they have some sort of native SDK where you can do games and stuff, but they're trying to say, no, if you're, write, if you're writing a GUI application for a mobile OS, use this memory managed language, use this memory managed API. And is that why they're slower now? Maybe, but uh, you know, sometimes being slower pays off in the long run like a uh, Mac OS X and Quartz, where their, their display layer was much slower than everybody else, especially in the early days, but it pays off 
when the hardware finally caught up to it, now they don't have to go through this painful revision of the display layer like Microsoft has been going through, you know, getting rid of GDI and replacing it with whatever the heck their uh, acronym is that replaces GDI. Is it WinFX? I don't know. Maybe someone in the chat room knows. But they're having a long, painful process of changing their display layer from the, the old version to the new version, whereas uh, Apple shipped Mac OS X with a sort of next-generation display layer from day one, and it was slow as molasses, but eventually the hardware caught up, and now Apple's sitting pretty, and Microsoft's still struggling. The chat room says uh, WPF, uh, Windows Presentation Foundation. Mm. I think that's a multiple-use acronym where it applies to both the API and the, uh, and the API layer, uh, and the uh, driver layer. But at any rate, um, so I think this is still a problem. And that's what, more or less what I said in the Revisit article is that, okay, so you, you, you delayed this problem somewhat, but the scary thing is that in 2010, I looked again at what, what are the alternatives? What, what are you going to do about this? And there aren't, don't seem to be many more choices. The only thing I would say about Apple's choices now is that Apple has proven itself to be competent enough to have more options. Like we, we, it's, we've seen where it can take a technology from somebody else, like a KHTML from the, the KDE initiative, and make WebKit out of it and just say, you know, we're going to own this from now on. We're going to drive it. We're going to fork your thing. I don't know if they consider it a fork, but we're going to take your code and we're going to be the driving force behind development from it from now on. And we're going to build it into a world-class browser engine called WebKit. We're going to give it a new name. We're going to rebrand it. We're still going to be open source, but still share with you or whatever. But we're not waiting for you. We're not waiting for KDE people. You know, oh, is it okay if we put this patch in? No, we're just plowing ahead as fast as we possibly can. And we're going to do our thing. And they, they decided to do it with their, with their compiler, too. They said, well, GCC, you know, it's nice that we had that for all those years. But you guys aren't as receptive to the kind of changes that Apple needs and so we're just going to, you know, say thanks, but no thanks. We're going to make our own compiler. And we'll make our compiler, you know, command line compatible with GCC so we can build all our old programs with it. But we're just going to go off in our own direction. So they made, you know, uh, they took the LLVM guys and made a new compiler based on that. Uh, and, you know, it's a long, difficult process to do that. But all these technologies have to do with C-based things and not memory-managed languages. But it does show that they can take someone else's project and just take it over 100%. Say, we're going to, we can hit, we got it from here. So now maybe they have more options in terms of, all right, so can, so can Apple take C-sharp and just say, thanks, Microsoft, but uh, we're going to go in our own direction with this. Thanks for giving us a good start. You figured out a lot of the problems. We're just going to make a new language and call it, you know, Apple P-sharp or something like that. Right. And, uh, and make our, our, their own language. All right. So, but the language is just one part of the equation. I think if they make a new language, it doesn't buy you anything. You need a new API and a new API that's built for that language, right? So that your programs become shorter, that you need fewer API calls, fewer instructions, that you take advantage of all the native aspects of this fancy new high-level language that you've got to make programmers' lives easier. Uh, and and the, the final difficult bit is, even after you've done those two things, even if you pick a language, and it's the most awesome language ever, and everybody loves it, and you, you, know, you own it, you control it, and you made it so great that just people can't even believe how awesome it is, and you make a new API built on it, and they're like, wow, I could write a program in this, this API that's like 100 times shorter than a Cocoa application because all this stuff that you had to do in Cocoa is just, not, it's just noise. You know, all that stuff disappears, all that marshalling of arguments and, and creating those NS dictionaries and making NS string objects. And it's like, no, it's all in the built-in language. We've got native strings. We've got native collection classes. We've got regular expressions built into the syntax. we just got everything. You know? Forget about that stuff. Uh, making objects and classes, everything is great. Um, then you need to say, okay, well, you've got these great things, but you've got a bunch of developers who are writing Objective-C Cocoa apps who know Objective-C really well and like Cocoa. How are you going to get them to say, okay, well, uh, we would like you to write your programs in a different language now using a different API that you've never heard of. 
And uh, you can't really port your old programs to it. So we'd really kind of like you just like rewrite them. So maybe for the next version, just do it in this different language and start from scratch. It is really, really difficult to transition developers and to keep all your existing applications running and keep everybody happy. Just ask Microsoft. Microsoft is spending, I think it's got to be at least a decade at this point. They built this infrastructure and they're saying, okay, please people, stop writing to the Win32 API. Stop writing MFC applications. Stop writing whatever you, you know, please use our new APIs. They're really good, I swear. You should use them. And then they would say, but of course, when, when we ship Windows, all our Windows applications are still going to be written with the old APIs. But no, you should use them because they'll be really good for you. Uh, we can't write Internet Explorer using them because, you know, that just wouldn't work. And yeah, the Windows Explorer won't be written using them. And yeah, no, none of the applications in the operating system are written using them. But no, you should use them because they're really great and you don't have to worry about memory. And it's just been a terrible, terrible slog to try to get their developers onto this new API, which at this point is like pretty darn mature and has some great new APIs that have advantages uh, over, over those other things, but they're like, yeah, but I have a working application that uses the old API, and as long as you don't make the old API stop, I'm going to keep using that. So I think Apple has gotten a little reprieve here, but they, the, the problem still exists. Uh, and this is where people start flipping out, if they're not already flipping out in, in the chat room, is that they're going to, there we will swear up and down that what I'm saying is nonsense, that Objective-C is perfectly fine. In fact, it's awesome. In fact, Objective-C is the reason why writing for Mac OS X is better than writing for other platforms, or that the Cocoa APIs are the reason for writing. You know, Objective-C, all those faults that you talked about, they seem theoretically important, but really, in practice, they're, they're, you know, they're not a problem for experienced Objective-C developers, and Apple has been revising the language, and they added blocks down at the C level and everything, and they added you know, synthesized properties and all these awesome things, and fast iteration. It's, just, it's actually progressing. I mean, we've got a lot of the great features that you're talking about, those high-level languages. We don't need it. Really, it's kind of like that uh, Winston Churchill joke where the, uh, the woman, I forget, the, I can't really script this joke, but he talks to some woman and, and offers her uh, money for sex, and, uh, and she refuses uh, oh, do you know the joke? Save me for myself. Okay? I don't. I don't. You don't know the joke? No. Someone in the chat room. But at any rate, uh, the, the punchline is that, that, that uh, Madam, I've already, we've already established what you are. Now we're just haggling over price. So go Google that and find the joke part of it, and you can make your own joke. <laughs> that, someone says that's George Bernard Shaw and not Churchill. That's probably correct. Um, but at any rate, if you agree with the premise that we talked about earlier about abstraction increasing, all we're arguing about here is the timeline. No one is arguing that Objective-C is going to be it forever, or at least I don't think any sane people. Because you can't, especially in the computer industry, you can't say Objective-C will last forever. Our grandchildren's grandchildren right. will be doing writing in Objective-C. They will be dereferencing pointers. <laughs> no, they will not. It's just a matter of the timeline. And this is the type of thing that you, you can't just decide, well, looks like Objective-C is kind of spent. Why don't we pick something else new? It takes literally decades or more to build up a foundation that you can transition to. Uh, and and you can't cheat by making bridges, and you can't cheat by keeping the old API and putting a new language. You just have to put in the work to figure out what is the next generation of developing for our platform going to be like. And if Apple has some secret answer that they're that they're working on inside the, the the corporation, I don't know about it. I didn't know about it in 2005. I still don't know about it. Maybe they have a Skunksworks project that's been going on for five, ten years that I don't know about. But I seriously doubt it. And I'm really concerned that they're not going to have an answer. And I'm concerned because all of their competitors have either already paid this price or are starting from scratch like Palm with WebOS and don't have to deal with this transition. You know, All of their competitors are starting at a higher level of abstraction than them. And Apple has tremendous advantages over them right now. But if they don't 
you know, for, if they do completely squash everybody else, then we're in for like a dark age of Objective C, where we can get <laughs> off this freaking language to a higher level language. But if they don't squash everybody else, eventually they're going to be in that Copeland like situation where everybody else has this thing and they're looking crappy. And developers are like, yeah, iOS, I was making a lot of money on that back in, you know, the, the first decade of the 2000s. But nowadays, just I can't deal with this, this whole memory thing. It's just so much easier to write, uh, you know, programs in these other languages and APIs. I have to write half as many lines of code. Then I'm going to deal with all this argument marshalling and all this ridiculous, you know, strange Objective-C stuff. It's just BS. These days, I shouldn't have to deal with that. Uh, and that's what I'm worried about with, with the Copeland 2010 thing. I, apparently, I was way off on the timeline. I didn't see iOS coming. I didn't see how that was going to give them a new lease on life, but I think it's still a problem. And no one I have talked to has said here's what Apple's going to do to get out of it. They either say, this is not a problem, or I'll be retired by the time it's a problem, so I don't care, which is a valid argument. You know, say, hey, I'll be retired on an island. I don't really care what Apple does. It's not my problem. Uh, and, and same thing for the people who are running Apple. They could say, that's not going to happen on my watch because I'll be retired by then. But if, if anyone is looking out for the long-term health of the company and the platform, I think you have to have an answer to this. And in 2005, maybe it was too early to be worrying about it, but I would say now in 2010, despite this iOS diversion, someone needs to be thinking about this, and I have no idea uh, what they're going to do. And I've never heard from anybody something that they're going to do that has convinced me that they're all set. Um, so that's about it. I had a whole other section here that we just simply do not have time for. I, may, I guess I'll make it into a whole other show topic, but then that's where I mean you can argue about uh, programming languages. Oh, so you don't you don't want to go into Perl here? That's I have a whole section on uh, on dynamic programming language. This is uh, I always start my uh, my blog ideas with a title because once I have a title that I like, I will eventually write something about it. This is my longest running title ever that you have or have not written about. That I have not written about. Are you going to give it away? Uh, I should just because I'm never going to freaking write about it. <laughs> It, this is kind of the, the Marco thing where I don't want to talk about programming languages on like uh, our Stechnik article because people get too antsy about it and it's not my usual thing. But the, the title, which no one should steal, because I swear I'll write about this in at least the next decade or two, is General Dynamics, which is a pun that no one will even get unless you know about like defense contractors from the 80s. But anyway, General Dynamics is the, is the article uh, title and it's about dynamic languages and the sad situation that they're in. But I think that should be a separate show topic. Okay, all right, waited. we can do that. Can do that. Someone's got it. General Dynamics made the F-16. That's right. Who doesn't know General Dynamics? Children of the 80s. Fans of jet fighter planes and defense contractors. Do you ever make models when you were a little kid? I did. You ever do I an F-16 or an F-18? I used to be able to identify any U.S. military fighter aircraft from my lifetime or several decades prior. Why does that not surprise me? I had models of them all over my room. I, we should actually do a whole show on the Joint Strike Fighter. That is a great... Gosh, uh, I can't wait for that one. Yeah, that's a great example of it. It's a great analogy to Apple and, and the technology market. Now, now here come the emails from the people who say, you should totally do a show. Yeah, or, or, or the Osprey. A couple of the military wonks bring out the Osprey. That, that gets more into like, that's more a show about government waste, I think, than about military aircraft. <laughs> so let's wrap this up with something positive for a change. Why would we do that? Because I think... I think there are a lot of people out there. Now, here's my take on, on Objective-C. I could never get used to the syntax of it. I just don't like it. I don't like the way it looks. And this is weird. This is really weird because, say, well, who cares how it looks? It's how, how does it feel when you program it? Or you didn't give it enough time or you didn't give it a chance. Well, I did. I've written a bunch of uh, apps in Objective-C. 
And I, you know, you just, at least in my case, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person where if I don't like the, the look of the IDE or I don't like the text editing window, or I don't like the color of the terminal and the fonts, I, I won't be able to do anything. I'll have to get them go. Can't do it. This is, this is actually a joint strike fighter connection. I'm not, will not explain it, but people in the, in the chat room, joint strike fighter, not liking how something looks. Yes. I will add that to the show notes. We'll do it in follow up. Okay. So in that situation, for me, the, the way something looks, the way the, the interaction, all of that's very important. And although I certainly understand the value of a programming language like Perl, it's, it's not something that's enjoyable to read. I was just sitting down with, uh, with the guru, the guy who is the biggest mentor in my programming life. I was just having lunch with him. It's like our, our goodbye lunch because I won't see him again because we're moving to Austin. I'll probably never see him again. I mean, never is a long time. Does this person have a name or is it like secret and that's why you have to call him the guru? He's known as the guru. And to you or worldwide? Uh, as if that's uh, either of those two things have a different meaning in both. All right. I mean, worldwide, the, the only I'm, I am the only way that people would know about him. So therefore, worldwide. Known as the guru. I t- right. He was one of the very first uh, a picture of him that I, I'll add to the show notes. Uh, there's a picture of him in my Flickr. So he's taught me t- tons of information, tons, uh, so much. So we were having lunch at uh, Chipotle. And we were, we were talking about something sort of sideways related to this. And, you know, for him... He 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 excels at all programming languages. At a you know he operates at very much a genius level, and for him it's simply it's more like a different kind of muscle memory. He types one way in one app, another programming language rather a different way in another. It's just the, the minor differences. Just okay, that's how I do it. Here. I I can't. I don't get into. I like. I want to like the language that I'm using visually. As well, I want to like the way it looks on the screen. I want to enjoy reading it. Is that weird? Maybe. So for me, when I look at, at a language like Objective-C, my first response is that it's ugly. And uh, I'll use something else. Is that weird? That's not weird. Uh, I mean, that, that also explains very neatly why you like Ruby. Yeah. That's the main reason I like Ruby. There's definitely a, an aesthetic appeal to that. I, I don't. I, but, I, mean, I actually whether, admire. Whether you like the language or not, I admire people who can deal with it. I, I think they're they should be applauded to deal with something as as ugly as Objective C because it's if you if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to to set aside everything that that your heart and and soul will tell you, it's a very powerful language and you can do amazing things like make a fart app for you know a million dollars, among other really good apps. I mean, you know, obviously. The, the amazing apps that are out there, I think, John, are a testament to what can be done with Objective-C. For, so forget the syntax part. Forget that it's a, a rough language to, to get into. If you can get over that hurdle, which admittedly I, would, I would never quite did, if you can do that, the whole world is, a, is right there at your fingertips. You can make apps. You can make f- apps that help people, apps that are just make you money, apps that are useful, educational, Great games. Uh, what's wrong with that? Who cares if you if you get to deal with this? Uh, all these things you pointed out. Who cares? It it just so what? It's just par for the course. 
And so what yeah, if this well, is all well, we ever well, have? Who, Why is that well, so bad? Who, well, who cares now? But what I'm saying is eventually people will care. And to think otherwise is just absolutely ridiculous on its face. That eventually, you know, maybe the people who are alive today won't care because it'll all be dead. But eventually it will be ridiculous. It'll be ridiculous as today if you say, well, if you want to write an application for the iPhone, you got to do it in machine code. So get out your hex that, editor. That would be very ridiculous. Things. That would be right? absurd. Or even, or even assembly, right? But if you if we were having this conversation back in the 60s when you know computers were just coming online or whatever and they said well you know of course we write all our programs here assembly here in in the military for this targeting computer or whatever uh, and yeah assembly is a pain but if you can get past it boy you can do some great things and it's just you can really get down to the bare metal and and if, if assembly is all we ever have i think that'll be fine in 2010 right. we're still writing an assembly everybody will be fine with it that's not how progress works that's not how humanity works people will not be fine with objective c forever so uh, do you do you then suspect that at some point it's Apple that's going to take charge of this, or do you think it'll come? You know, remember, uh, well, what was the name of that development language? It was a full on IDE. It was a Code Warrior. Code Warrior. I yes. knew people that were using Code Warrior, swore by Code Warrior, and really resisted everything yeah, that came out when Xcode came out because they, they said Code Warrior was better. They didn't have a new language, but they had a new API, new API, and new you know, editor. Use this, use our PowerPlant API instead of writing to the Mac Toolbox, which at that point the Mac Toolbox was ridiculously creaky, and they built a higher level API on top of it with the same language. Uh, I think it all depends on who's steering Apple at the point that the crisis starts to loom. I think it's irresponsible for the company not to have a project about this already. Maybe they do. I can't say that they don't because if they did, it's not like they're going to tell people that they do. Uh, maybe they've tried seven different directions and they're still experimenting internally. But I'm going to say that if at this point Apple does not have some sort of plan in motion with people doing actual work uh, to figuring out what's after Objective-C and Cocoa, they're being irresponsible as a corporation. Despite the fact that all the leadership who are there now will likely be retired when it's time to execute on that plan, they need to be thinking about it now. I certainly hope to be alive at the point where I think it will be embarrassing to ask people to write in Objective-C and Cocoa uh, for iOS. And the only way that it's not going to be embarrassing is if Apple comes to dominate so thoroughly that, that like I said, it's the, I think this will definitely be the show title, the dark age of Objective-C starts to reign. Sort of like the dark age of Windows when there was no progress in uh, uh, you know, web technology because IE was dominant and not a lot of progress on and desktop applications because they were just you know, increasingly complicated Windows applications. They just Every version they added 10 new buttons to the toolbar and it took Apple to come along and sort of wipe the slate clean and say, Here's what you can do with application design that's different, and you know, here's what you can do with web browser design with uh, with uh, Mozilla and everything. Web technologies can actually be cool if you're not stuck in IE forever. Uh, I don't want to see a dark age of Objective C, but it's the only way that Objective C is not going to hit a crisis point in my lifetime, assuming I live to a ripe old age. And so I think there needs to be a plan, uh, and I have no idea what the heck it, it should be, but it needs to be something. Hopefully, uh, hopefully they're on the ball. Do you think do you think when they do do it, that it will be a, a, a universal transition the way that it was with Xcode in the past? Like this is the way to build it, or do you think that they'll have complementary tools, maybe, or, or complementary compatibility, uh, so that so that when you want to make this transition, it's your choice. You can use whatever infrastructure co- coding infrastructure you'd like to use. So if if I am the most optimistic and I say, let's imagine that the most competent incarnation of Apple is the one executing this plan. It's Because the most competent incarnation of Apple is really, really good at everything you need to be good at to do this. They're really good at transitions. That's how many transitions they've done from different CPUs, different languages, different IDEs. They are really good at transitions at their best. They can pull off amazing things that no one would imagine, like changing the entire CPU architecture of their entire line of products, like without a, a little bump even. 
that was just pretty amazing. Like they can pull it off. They can do right. those type of things. If that is the crew running the show, and if they have a good plan that they, you know, because it's going to take years and years to do this no matter what. If they start early enough and have a good plan and aren't acting out of panic or desperation and have good leadership, I think they can pull it off with a, with a complete transition, sort of the way they put everyone onto Xcode. Right. It was a little bit bumpy in the beginning, right? But they just they were slow and methodical, and you know, it, the Xcode didn't even exist. They said, "Stop using Power Plant. We will support you with Carbon." for a little while, but like, seriously, guys, stop using PowerPoint. You should really use Project Builder. We don't want you to build your applications with MetroWorks, but it will still work for a little while. And eventually, it's like, no, seriously, forget about that MetroWorks stuff. No more PowerPlant. I'm serious. Go on to Project Builder. And by the way, there's this new thing called Xcode. Forget about Project Builder. I know you next guys are cranky, but we're making a new app called <laughs> Xcode, and it'll be cool. And, you know, they go with that for a few years, and they say, that carbon thing, we, we need to really need to cut that out. Because that's legacy crap. We're moving away from it. Carbon guys, sorry, you know, your apps will still work, but you're not getting on the 64-bit train with us. And Xcode, we're going to do it as a single window interface. It looks like iTunes, and you're just going to deal with it, and we're just all on the train, everybody on the Xcode train. You know, and by the way, that compiler you like, GCC, we've got a new one. Forget about that GCC thing. We're going to transition to a new one. It takes years and years and years in incremental steps, but everybody gets funneled into it. So I think when they do undertake this procedure, it's going to be a big, giant funnel, and it's going to be like, all right, guys, let's start, you know, Start turning off the lights on that old stuff. You're going to be around for years and years, but it's just going to be like Power Plant and, and Carbon and you know Project Builder and all the other stuff that you like and GCC. It's not going to go away today. It's not going to go away tomorrow, but we're telling you it's a big, long funnel, and we're all going down the chute to the slaughter or wherever you want to think about it. These are all bad analogies. And everyone together in a line, and we're all going to transition to you know Apple Basic or whatever the hell they're going to come up with and there's going to be a new api and coco is great and everything and we'll still do bug fixes but i'm sorry but coco is not making the transition to 128 bit <laughs> which is ridiculous yeah less people think i'm serious about 128 bit. but anyway that's the type of thing they're gonna do that's apple at its best where they, they have a plan it takes many years to execute and they do it in incremental steps and people grumble along the way but in the end everyone comes out the other side happier that is the uh the best case scenario and i think they need to be working on that now all right. I can't disagree. I really can't disagree with you. I like you to when I, when I can, I try. No, I, I, I want to. I can't. You can disagree with me on the dynamic languages. Episode. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll have a lot to say there. Because that's, that's nuts that you're using Perl. <laughs> it's not nuts. It must be a golden handcuffs thing. We'll get to that. It's the get sanest thing ever. All right, let's wrap this up. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to Shopify.com. Remember to use code 5 by 5 and you'll get three months free. Thanks to Rackspace.com slash king of the apps. You could win 10. We do a lot. We give you we give you $10,000 in three months free. Do as much as we can here. And uh, thanks to John Syracuse. There's no Z. And last time you said, follow up, you said, could you spell my name instead of just saying there's no Z? It's S-I-R-A-S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A on uh, Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, and uh, we appreciate you listening. You can check out 5by5.tv and hear a whole bunch of other shows. We just got a new show just premiered today with uh, Mike Montero. It's uh, called uh, Let's Make Mistakes. So go check that out at 5by5.tv. Subscribe and uh, have a good week. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.